Hey folks, welcome back. This is Elliot with the Pearl Pearls Almanac here today with a super fresh, exciting new episode. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, and wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can find us on Patreon. If you're enjoying what we're doing here and you'd like to help us cover the cost of hosting some of these podcasts. We don't explicitly offer any of our traditional content focused on the specific goals of this podcast to our Patreons in terms of limited access or anything like that right now. Knowledge is for everyone. But we have started up a Patreon-only miniseries called The Prologues, during which we will do some critiques on various subject matters and talk about those things not only from an intersectional lens, but also within the context of this podcast. Societal collapse, reconstruction, farming, chicken tractors, all that stuff. If you're interested and you are willing to donate $2, it's up on our Patreon. We've also released one episode that was asked by popular demand for public consumption. So that's a good place to start. Check it out and see if you're, uh, see if you'd like to hear more. Shout out to our patrons, Sam G, Popsicable, Deb, Heather W, Jennifer C, MJ Wallace, Jerbear205, Lucas G, J, Ember L, J Neeland, Rob K, Subversively Stitched, Liz C, John R, Hadley P, Nathan M, Matt C, Aaron H, Tony B, Camille P, Eric V, Dan T, Austin C, Nunya Business, Teflon Billy, Ahern J, Elliot B, Sasa Jane B, Laurel, Kim, Julian C, Eden S, David G, Travis J, Moosenstein, Claire, Josh L, Ross, and Sam F., Thank you all for your Patreon donations. Um, we had to shout you guys out because you have been helping support us. And we couldn't do this or continue to do this without your help. So thank you so much. Yeah, you don't know how many times Elliot had to practice that. It's hard. I can't. I just learned to read last week. I've been winging it the whole time. Stress. Uh, it's killing me. So thank you for your support. You guys are amazing. And even the folks who have been one-time contributors in the past, we get it. We've been there, but we still appreciate your contributions. So thank you so much. There's a lot of great work being done, and it's hard to only support one project. And we thank you for what you all have done for us. And I keep saying it, but it's honestly the truth. It's amazing that people are supporting this project, and we can't thank you enough. On top of this content... We've got stickers available, and we're including some footage from Andy's farm, putting the theory that we're talking about into practice in real time so you can see what that looks like. And if you're interested in that, check out the Patreon. While we do enjoy making this content, there's about 20 hours worth of work that goes into each episode, so any support we can get to help offset our actual costs, we fully and wholeheartedly appreciate. So we're going to plug that Patreon one more time. We also are on Instagram and Facebook if you want to follow us over there and maybe comment on some of the memes that Andy shit posts and maybe start an internet fight. That's totally cool. We fully encourage that. Fight everyone. Fight everybody on the internet. It's, it's the <laughs> rules. Um, and if this is your first episode, we highly, highly recommend going back to the first episode of the podcast and catching up since each episode springboards from the previous content or at least the beginning of this mini series, which frames up these conversations. So our goal with this mini series has been to challenge Kind of, I guess, the largest question I think the left really struggles with, with whatever you want to call the farming style that doesn't rely on massive petrochemical energy. And the question is really, how do we detangle colonization from things like permaculture and regenerative farming, especially because they have such a problematic past and in many ways present 
We did a dive into permaculture at the beginning of this series, chronicling its history, what permaculturalists believe, and a bit about the problems associated with the practice and the movement. With that framed up, we jumped into urban farming in places like Havana and Detroit, which highlighted the way that communities were learning how to develop their own sense of food sovereignty and identity through their food. Since then, we've jumped into this concept of looking at various indigenous farming systems in different parts of the world. And in this episode, we're going in a different place, specifically Africa. We're going to be looking at the indigenous people of Lake Turkana, which call themselves the Turkana people. We focus most of our time looking at groups that live along the oceans, primarily on the mountaintops or on the mountainsides, I guess you could say, at the bottoms of the slopes of the mountains. And a large part of that is because those regions are traditionally easily farmed because of the natural tendency of lowlands to receive the nutrients from the hillsides. For context, if you're not familiar with Lake Turkana, it's in modern northwest Kenya. Lake Turkana is unique in a few ways. The first is that it's a saltwater lake. In fact, it's the fourth largest saltwater lake in the world, meaning that the water isn't really drinkable. It kind of is, but it's not ideal. Not only this, but it's also the world's largest alkaline lake, also known as a soda lake. This means the lake is extremely high in pH, which causes a lot of interesting things to happen to the biology, primarily that the biology is more active and diverse than in traditional lakes. Further, the lake is the world's largest desert lake, which means you guessed it, the lake is surrounded by desert. But before it was a desert, it was actually very different. Prior to the arrival of domesticated animals in the sense that we understand them today in the Lake Turkana region, human subsistence was really focused on exploiting the resources of the lake. This is really evident by uh, research that's shown that there were what's so-called bone harpoon cultures that were you know, around about 8,000 years ago. And they probably expanded and existed in those regions for much longer than that. These occupations were generally tied to a previous history of the lake when it stood over 100 feet above its current height and had more water flow with the Nile River, probably, and this is totally speculative, neutralizing the lake water and allowing for more use of the lake itself, and probably speaks to a time when there was a more humid climate, suggesting forests had once stood in these regions. After about 2000 BC, the subsistence economy shifted to cattle and caprine herding, which is essentially goats and sheep. So I didn't really have time to dig into it, but something that was really interesting about the timing of this region drying out is that it was around the same period when Egypt fell under Roman rule. And I don't know a whole lot about Egyptian history, but I'm curious, normally healthy empires, you could say, don't normally fall. So... The fact that it did means that they were already having problems and Roman uh, agriculture is significantly different in that it's much more similar to modern agriculture. So I'm curious if the impact of whatever they were doing plus the Roman agricultural system being enforced had any impact on the uh, climate of the region by um, drying out the air or anything like that. So I don't really have an answer and I'm not saying that necessarily is the case. But it definitely is something that I think kind of perked my ears up when I was doing a little bit of digging about this. Yeah, it's something to th think about for sure. I don't really know how uh, to calculate. I, I guess you need hindsight to do it. But in order to calculate, you know, the changes of human behavior and do those changes take effect in a lifetime or does it take, you know, 
generations in an amount of time that a normal person wouldn't be able to live through. Yeah, I think it took a, a course of at least a couple hundred years. You know, it, it it points to a really interesting question I think people have when we talk about indigenous farming systems, especially when we talk about arid regions. And people say, like, why did these people settle someplace that was so sparse? It wasn't like that yeah, before. Yeah, ex- exactly. It wasn't like that before. And, you know, the people stayed where they were, and that evolution away from what it traditionally was was slow. And oftentimes the people in those regions didn't have the the knowledge that this was a long-term problem. So maybe they didn't change their food systems or whatever to be able to deal with that problem the way if they had known they could have prepared for it more. So I, I think that's really interesting. One of the things about this lake is it also sits at the edge of a volcano. So much like the uh, Japanese the landscape is extremely fertile because of the lava and, and the high quality soil that comes from that. So it, it should, by all definitions, for a long period of time have been extremely green. Like you had good soil, and especially when the, the uh, lake was higher up, you had the river, the, the Nile, which still flows to it, but was able to flow more aggressively, assumingly. Otherwise, how is it filling up? So there was obviously a very different climate that existed there before and there was this transition period so in this episode i was thinking we would look more at the before and after this change in climate because i think it does speak to this idea of resiliency and climate change and how the development of good solid communities itself even outside of the aspect of having good agricultural systems is in itself a sense of resiliency against that of evolution So like during the more tropical time around Lake Turkana, they primarily hunted small game, were semi-nomadic, and lived heavily off of the fish in the ponds, and um, preyed on ostriches for their eggs. So there's a lot of evidence for this in the various uh, bones and things like that that they found that, you know, they primarily ate tilapia, which are delicious, so I don't blame them. And uh, they also did have some pastoral subsistence farming, meaning that they were grazing some kind of in some capacity and they were grazing cattle camels and again the caprine which are like essentially a sheep goat some somewhere in that ballpark uh, is kind of just the family and without being able to be specific and there was even evidence of domesticated donkeys which are primarily used for land management they're a beast of burden not really for raising for animals or for eating which would suggest intensive farming or land management was taking place in some capacity, but there's really no evidence to, exp- to point out exactly what that looks like. So we, we don't really know, but what we do understand is that the Turkana were essentially um, jack-of-all-trades. They, they could do a little bit of everything, and they were there for a long, long time. So they were able to live in alignment with the interests of the ecology in, those, in that region. You know, going back in time... Uh anthropologically i guess looking back on a civilization and saying that they're a jack of all trades points to the fact that they were pretty resilient they could handle many different things and they didn't really need to specialize in any one thing or get good at any one thing to to trade services or goods they were able to provide for themselves yeah across the board yeah and the environment must have been pretty good there must have been a lot of surplus in the environment for them to not have to have a very, or at least as we understand it. And of course, you know, when we're trying to do this type of research, I mean, 
this is something that we we are primarily relying on fossil records, um, whether it's sediment cores or excavation or things like that. There's no passed down language that or passed down like history or written history mm. that really gives us an idea of, you know, it might have been much more intensive than we think. And they relied on all these different things because of needing multiple sources of food instead of just one because that wouldn't have been sufficient like that that's totally possible as well we're mm -hmm. at this point it's very speculative about this history mm -hmm. what's interesting now is how how different and how extreme the climate is there now the the average rainfall is around 17 inches annually which you say oh okay it's like a little over a foot for context today in the united states the average rainfall is around 32 inches and that's still like averaging out Arizona and Washington state and Texas and all of those areas that don't traditionally have a large rainfall. Mm -hmm. And this is before in, or in terms of pre-colonial, they were living there without irrigation and things like that. Further, the temperatures in this region are generally between 75 and a hundred degrees during the day. So it is constantly hot. It, it's a really unique climate in the sense that you've got this giant lake it's very hot. The water's not drinkable mostly, and it's dry, but you've got this giant lake and, and good soil. And people live there. <laughs> and people live there. And it's not how it's always been. So they've kind of evolved with the landscape. And you, you get a little sense of that when, you, when we start looking at how they farm the land today. So when we talk about these kind of unique climates, we really can't think about them in isolation from understanding how the livestock is managed. In reality, humans nor the livestock could ever survive in these types of areas without one another to help manage and kind of see the big picture. Humans couldn't live on the grasses and things that grow there or the trees or any of those things that are really non-edible, but also the animals, the animals that they graze likely wouldn't be able to manage the landscape. So th they have a bunch of different uh, land management strategies that are really integral to not only the individual, but the community, which I think is really why they've been so resilient in these regions. One of the things that they do is keep more than one type of livestock, and they divide the livestock holdings into separate units to minimize the effects of localized droughts, meaning that they might have, let's just say, 10 cows. They don't keep all of the 10 cows together in one area because during drought, that might mean they need to go long distances to get those cows to areas that have uh, green grass, even when it's a little bit drier. So instead, they separate the cows into small clusters with small clusters of sheep and all these other things that they're grazing, which all eat different plants and help regenerate that landscape. This helps minimize the effects of localized droughts. And this the sense of resource sharing is kept within small communities usually through gifting and things like that is how it gets passed on and given to other people and different as new folks join the community and things like that. It relies heavily on relationships and gift giving. So with the livestock, do they plant any like annual crops or do they plant any feed or fodder for the animals? Or are they growing food for themselves? How does the subsistence work? Are they subs so like, are sustaining themselves? Off of man? Right. Are they substanding themselves? Or are they growing the subsistence for their animals, or is it both, a combination of both? They grow uh, sorghum as their primary 
as far as I know, their only annual crop or only meaningful annual crop. Mm -hmm. And because of the inconsistency of the the weather patterns, the rivers that flow to and from the lake uh, have a tendency to flood very easily because the land can't really absorb the rain. Mm -hmm. So what they actually do is they stagger, much like they stagger their animal systems, they stagger their sorghum growing areas where they grow their primary crop is sorghum. And they plant it at different elevations so that depending on how much flooding they get, at least one of them will do well. Okay, so is this similar to the terrace patties of the Satayama? Um, sort of, in the sense that they're they're terraced, right. but it's essentially, we know we're not going to get enough rain to water them, but when we get the floods, the mm-hmm. floods will push up water and saturate the land, mm-hmm. but we don't know how high it's going to flood. Right. So if we do every five feet or whatever it might be, they're able to manage the landscape in a way that they know at least one of them will get what they need so that they can guarantee, you know, it's like planting five crops, but knowing you're going to get one. So it's a different sense of like, we think of, oh, you need to plant diversity to make sure you get a good crop. You know, you want tomatoes and cucumbers and this and that. So Mm -hmm. that way, if this blight happens or this type of weather happens, one of the, uh, one of the crops will survive. They did the same thing, but with the same crop, they just, focus that differential on elevation, which is really interesting. It seems like they really uh, subscribe to the not putting all of your eggs in one basket kind yeah. of kind of approach. It's kind of like spread out your resources and have little pockets yeah. of resources you can go to and use because it's, it's very never, decentralized. Right. Yeah. You never know when, you know, drought's going to come or there's not enough water or in some cases there's too much damn water. Yeah. And it ruins, you know, part of your what you would be yeah. harvesting, but it doesn't get everything. Yeah, you know something isn't going to make it. You know most of it isn't going to make it, but you're betting enough that you know one of them will make it. So not only do they actually do the topographic heights, but they even try to time it differently of when they're planting different plants. Mm-hmm. So that way they can get successional crops and plan for if there's a really late rainfall and it's at the wrong time or if an early flood comes in and it wipes out the crops before they're strong enough to handle the water uh, coming in. So there's a lot of resiliency by doing these different uh, methodologies of, again, a different way of thinking about planting a diversity, right? diversifying. Right. And I think about how it's inherently ecological because they live in an ecosystem that has the ability to stagger rainfall, stagger droughts, stagger the inputs needed to, to produce for yourself. So their response to that is to stagger, you know, their methods of how they control and use their resources. It's actually kind of, it, it's smart. It's it, brilliant. It, it seems like it's, yeah. super, it seems like it's oversimplified, but it seems like it, it's the natural response that just fits. Yeah. It's, it's working with the landscape and not trying to force a different system on it when they know this one works. So not only do they do this, but they also rotate in different farmlands. So some farmlands would be left fallow for multiple years, sometimes generations. And those were usually based on watching the evidence of the rainfall and the flooding change the topography and how the landscape responded to it. And if there were patterns showing that an area or a region was getting less and less water, then they knew it was time to abandon it and allow nature to kind of take its course and um, with the the idea that eventually they would end up going back to it, but they were in a cycle when that landscape was no longer really habitable for people. Like I said, we they not only abandon these landscapes, 
but um as they um found that the the rainfall and the flooding weren't really working towards what they were looking for they also uh tried to tie these landscapes with the the forest landscapes that were used for livestock browsing so while we might think of places like uh like we're talking about like arid africa as being straight desert that's not really what we're talking about we're talking about a very loose understanding of a savanna where there are patches of grass and the occasional tree there were various ways that they could help improve the landscape and part of that was the grazing pattern people are familiar with like alan savory's work then they understand that there's a lot of research that has shown that intensive mob grazing over quick periods of time help benefit the soil and um, help provide nitrogen through the manure and all of those important things so they understood the value of the the forest landscape and they try to integrate their livestock browsing into where they're also growing their sorghum. They established the sorghum gardens along where the rivers were, like I said, and they were able to do the topographical uh, layering, but they're also in the process selectively clearing what trees existed and primarily cleared the younger trees while saving the mature trees, which uh, helped hold the soil in place so it wasn't washed away during the floods. It provided shade during the extremely hot days because if people recall from our amazing graze episode, we had talked about C3 versus C4 plants and C4 plants being summer species and even summer species like sorghum stop growing after 95 degrees heat. So the trees provided some shade so that they could continue growing and actually be more productive despite the fact that they were under shade during those intensive heats. So they kept the trees, which the animals could graze on, and also help their sorghum grow more quickly. So not only did it do this, but it helped the forest regenerate. And some research even showed that that this method of farming promoted ecosystem diversity by creating highly heterogeneous vegetation in the floodplain. So we looked at the fact that the Turkana were managing these sorghum gardens beneath the canopy of the trees that they kept and they wiped out pretty much everything else underneath in order for them to maximize their ability to grow sorghum on the landscape this really helped supplement the the meat heavy diet because of the fact they relied on so many animals that grazed things that humans couldn't eat so while these gardens were again normally found around the rivers and things like that is also uh, convenient because it was close to where the wet season uh, livestock grazing areas were. Generally, the animals were grazed there and the women could handle watching the livestock and managing the livestock while also working the land and, you know, if they're harvesting sorghum or whatever they might have been doing to manage that landscape, they could do both at the same time because everything was in that area. Generally, the cows went upland up into the hills for dry seasons when they needed to graze further. Yeah, so back to how they would uh, abandon the land and leave it fallow. Like, were there long-term effects to them moving around where they were um, intensively managing the landscape? Yeah, so actually there was a lot of evidence of differences between the farming landscapes of different ages, but there really wasn't between the active and the abandoned farms that were of the same age, if that makes sense. So, Go on, explain, uh, (laughs) because I have... I think I have more questions, but you might <laughs> okay. explain it. Go ahead. So what that meant was that while the farms impacted the landscapes, 
the landscapes never really reverted back to a natural state to what we think of, like, you know, the way you might think of an, a forest creeping in on an old farm here in New England or something like that. Mm-hmm. The interaction between the active and follow farming landscapes of different ages was significant, though. So what that means is woody species richness showed significant differences between farming landscapes and active and fallow farms. On average, the fallow farms had greater woody species richness than the actively cultivated farms. So you would see more species richness, but it it speaks to a, a kind of a nuance in how the landscape is managed. Cultivated farms were outright eliminating certain species from their landscapes, which returned after the landscapes were no longer farmed. But despite this, old and very old farming landscapes had significantly greater species richness than the landscapes of recent and middle periods, although differences were not significant between old and very old and between recent and middle. There's a few reasons why greater species richness may exist in the oldest landscapes, but not the newer landscapes, despite it seeming kind of contradictory. Uh, It's very likely that species that were not favorable and weren't necessarily bad, but the other species were slower growers that that were favorable, So they had to be thinned. So like, think about like, if you wanted an oak forest, for example, here, oaks grow slowly, pines will grow much quicker, cherries will grow much quicker, but those don't really produce anything you can eat. So you'd be cutting down repeatedly the fast growing pines. And so that way you're, if you walked on my property, it looks like all pines, but it's because every spring I'm cutting down, you know, these little one foot, two foot pine trees. But once the oaks are big enough, it doesn't really matter if the pines come in anymore. I don't have to manage for that. And they can provide other resources that might not be my primary focus, but is something now that my oak trees are all set and big and, you know, the pines are no longer a, a competitor to them. I'll say, all right, now I, I would like to have a couple pine trees for this and that and whatever, because my primary focus is now taken care of. Mm-hmm. So you've got less diversity early on, but more diversity later on. And again, if I abandon that property after that, it's oak heavy, but it's not, it doesn't look out of place in a natural environment. Right. So they even found a way to use the input of time um, to their advantage because that's something that, you know, every farmer has to think about, but not me as a layperson. I don't really think of time as an input, but it totally is (laughs) when when you have, you know, a planting season, a harvesting season a sowing season all of those different things especially when you're talking about perennials right and like you read these stories about when the colonists showed up to the united states and it was like there were oak trees and all these things everywhere and it was because the landscape was managed the pines that were cut down to be sent back to england because they grew straight as an arrow to be on boats those um those are primarily in like swamplands because those weren't being managed by the indigenous people Mm -hmm. Uh, and I think that's something kind of similar, except that in this case, they were finding a secondary use for them once, you know, their oak trees were hitting maximum size and things like that, or not oaks, but like whatever they had as a, a comparative, which is primarily acacia trees, it looks like. So this woodland regeneration is linked to livestock browsing. And again, working as a riparian barrier for those embankment floods. So like I said, they the primary tree that they were growing there in terms of fodder uh, was acacia, which dropped the, which have these pods that livestock, especially goats and cows, 
ingested and dispersed the seeds of, which helped accelerate forest regeneration, which again was sustained by the floods and the fact that they were able to carry a lot of the seeds from being in piles and also provide a bunch of nutrients and all these other things to accelerate that growth pattern. So what we really see is that there's a link between the farming, the forest landscape, and the livestock grazing that's more than just basic management practices, but essentially a really complicated ecosystem management system where they're tying all these things together that separately probably would really fall apart. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and like humans are the thing that ties all those things together. So, you know, for example, they, they built very basic huts for livestock and a lot of their traditional housing was only meant to last for five to 10 years. And then they would kind of rot and fall down and they would go someplace else and build. It was all always within like a, a region. So what they would do is they would build these like little huts and the animals would sleep in there and eat in there and poop in there and all that stuff. And the trees would get good shade from being in the little you know, livestock kennel, whatever you want to call it. And they would grow. And by the time the building fell apart, they were ready to you know, take on the elements. Uh, and that, that's where your farm or your uh, new forest started. So they, they provided the, the groundwork for nature to take its course in terms of helping uh, accelerate the process. Right. And even again, going back to that ecological approach, even their living situation was staggered. Yeah. To, to match their, their ecosystem that they live in. Exactly. So where it gets a little complicated, really, and speaks to the resiliency of the people is um, the ownership of the ability to manage and utilize the landscape. This is always a fun part of the conversation where we get to talk about the concept of ownership and property and what that means, you know, outside a capitalist view, but what it means to have like, I guess, an ecological approach to what it means to own your resources. Yeah, it's really weird. Uh, and I, I don't mean weird as in like odd, but in the sense that it's something that I think it, if you didn't grow up with it, it's really hard to comprehend mm-hmm. because I've read a ton about it and I still am like, I kind of get it, but I also don't, but I think it's because of, it redefines our concept of what it means to own something. Yeah. I mean, it should be fucking complicated because we don't, our brains are so wired because of the world we live in. So to, to claim uh, ownership or rights to land is obviously super important for people that live in such a, uh, a limited environment. And um, this, the semi communalist system of access to trees and grazing and things like that is predominantly known as equar. Equar is the ideology, which gives the individuals in the community the right to use the trees as they see fit as long as they do not kill or harm the trees themselves, which is really a key part of it. However, such rights are further complicated by being three-dimensional in terms of the people, meaning the pastoralist, that is the farmer, time, the pastoralist's ability to maintain the necessary links to keep his equar, meaning, again, being in that region because of that semi-nomadic lifestyle, and space, and that's specifically the area that is covered by that equar. The people of Turkana have evolved uh, well-managed and basically sound ecological strategies that enable them to utilize the vegetation on a sustainable basis through exploiting the different economic niches. Again, grazing, utilizing different species of grazing, integrating the sorghum into their grazing, working with trees for tree fodder and you know, the pods and things like that. 
So this Turkana silvopastoral system maximizes both vegetation in time and space through this system of not only grazing like we just talked about, but also utilizing wet and dry season grazing methods, which also uh, involves setting aside specific dry season grazing reserves. So this resource management is made more complex, both by what we just talked about, which is already complex, and the use of social controls concerned with sharing, flexibility, and mobility. So, you know, very simple people. What? (laughs) (laughs) So the, the landscape is, again... I think what's really important is to remember that they primarily rely on land, uh, livestock to mm-hmm. subsist. Like, I, I don't know the exact number, but I'm willing to bet their diet is well north of 50% of it is meat. So their their system is, of rangeland is that basically their livestock are grazed in the lowlands after the rains to make use of the annual flush of grass. And again, this is while they're also working with the sorghum while the ground is wet, getting it in and fertilized and making sure that it you know, roots enough so that it can be resilient on its own mostly. And this may only last a few months. And then the stock will, uh, the livestock will eventually move towards the hills to make use of the dry season grazing areas. This herding movement reflects the way the Turkana divide their family and lives in two divisions. This herding moment reflects the way the Turkana divide their family and lives into two divisions, namely the Abor and the Iogos divisions. The Abor division occupies the hill areas and is comprised of young and mature stock together with the younger people, while the Iogos is the lowland unit and is composed of older stock and the older people. So essentially the younger people can manage the further traveling and, you know, the fact that most of this is done on foot and things like that, while the elderly can kind of just hang out near the water and uh, manage from a distance. Uh, these relations are based on stock sharing, which is an important factor in strong continuing links to in-laws, relatives, and leaders. The maintenance of such a mutual support network is based on stock sharing, which is an important factor in maintaining those relationships with in-laws and relatives, and the influence of the local traditional prophets and sacrificers, all of which serve to spread out the risk. These are important factors in maintaining flexibility and coping with the different risks of disease, raiding, and drought. So they build their community by sharing, basically. Sharing and, and uh, what's it called? Strengthening relationships, like when families are joined together yeah. or community leaders help out or whatever it is, yeah, but they share what they have. Yeah, and there's some sense of accountability and recognition of you know, it's really interesting that they divide the younger from the elderly because it like really speaks to like that concept that you'd brought up that they were thinking about time as well. And like, this is a, a very human experience of that. So I, I thought that was really interesting. So these grazing patterns are generally considered what's called a Dakar, which is a cooperative grazing community. Uh, it's usually fairly temporary or more permanent if it's a real security risk cluster of families that come together in the wet season. It can be from 40 to 100 or more families and is usually formed among families who know each other and often have family ties at some point. There's a lot of uh, the Adakars generally facilitate herd security and herding cooperation together with a strengthened social network. Usually the herding unit follows the same movements, but also retains a relationship with the people who control the area and may want or need to use an alternative route. 
And all of these relationships are really based on sharing the stock. This is super important because it helps maintain flexibility and the ability to graze and deal with all these different issues. Because of the instability of the grazing environment, such grazing communities can't really be permanent. They have to really be uh, have some organizational flexibility to reach the various challenges that come up, whether it's from climate, vegetation, or disease. So during the dry seasons, those adakars tend to break up as each group follows its own dry season grazing pattern. But these are, again, based on familial relationships and that ownership of communities. But that ownership is very temporary, and it's limited to as long as you don't damage the landscape. Mm-hmm. So the social organization of the household is really a, a determining factor in making sure this functioning system works. The, the general idea is that the survival strategy of a farmer isn't really restricted to his household level only, but to the communal level. This is recognized generally through that sense of use rights. So when we talk about use rights, we had talked a little bit about being able to use the landscape but not killing the trees and things like that. So let's go more into the ownership. Let's elaborate more on the equar and sure. what that, I guess, what that means in space and in terms of, um, in practice. Yeah, in practice, in, in space and in practice. Yeah. Yeah. So technically speaking, the term equar really just means the land beside the riverbank, but it, that's not really accurate anymore. It, it's a little bit nuanced, more nuanced than that. And it really speaks to uh, an ability to be flexible to the changes in the environment and what's needed. It, While it is technically speaking uh, associated with that ownership of the trees beside or near the river, it, it's more about managing the landscape in that region. So the equar is important in terms of being able to provide dry season fodder in the form of pods and leaves and things like that. To do that means that you can't be cutting down trees. And if they want to give anything to other people, or if other people want to use that particular area, they need to get um, a pr- agreement within or a consensus from the community to give that access. And when that equar no longer is managing that piece of land, it's given back to the community so someone else can make it more productive. So there's no sense of like you can own it and walk away, but it's still yours. If you're no longer managing it, it goes back to the community. Right. So I think there's a a distinction there between how we think of ownership where, you know, you have your little parcel of land and whatever falls on that land or whatever grows on the land, it's yours. I, I don't know what the law is as in terms of, you know, how how deep does do those does that parcel of land go? Like if you yeah. dig a hole eight feet, is what's in that eight foot hole as long as it's in your parcel, do you still own that? And what about airspace above it and all that? That yeah. that none of that comes into play. No. This is typically or this is um strictly for the resource itself. If you're you know, if you have dibs on it and you have a herd that needs it, then that's yours. You can use that. Nobody should be able to take it. But if it's outside but with of that comes the ground rules that you do not destroy it. Right. Right. You leave it for somebody else to use it. So again, it comes down to using the resource. If it's not going to be used by your livestock or whatever your needs are, then it's left to the next person who should be eligible to use it. Yeah. And I think part of that accountability is that everyone lives and knows each other. So you can't be like a an absent landlord or something. Like everyone knows everyone. And 
there there's that sense of um, accountability that exists because of how small these communities are, which I think provides some flexibility in our, their understanding of ownership and also allows for quick adjustments to maximize the potential of the landscape if somebody is not managing it or absent. Sure. And thinking about the concept of competition where somebody owns, you know, 12 goats and their neighbor owns eight and you want him to have less goats and you want more. So, you know, there's no, I guess, incentive, I guess, to use up all the resources and take from somebody else. Yeah, it's, it's quite literally subsistence. And unless you need to eat four more goats than the person next to you, what's the benefit? Right. Um, it's very different from property ownership here in the States. Yeah. These trees are really the the most uh, important component on the landscape and are conserved because they're used for everything from fodder and food for people to medicines and building materials to and for fuel for their homes and fencing materials, household implements, as well as their importance is recognized through their use as a central meeting point for people, reinforcing their place within the community as a component of the community. But like I said, those trees will be pollarded or, you know, they might cut down some branches, but they just generally do not cut any of the trees down, especially the acacia. The The ones they do cut down are, again, those kind of more weedy type trees that have less use because it allows for better ground cover of perennial grasses and uh, various grazings for their animals that they manage. By keeping the canopy over the grasslands, by keeping these bigger trees, not only do they get fodder, but they actually keep the soil about 20 degrees cooler. Again, increasing the grass's ability to grow and feed, producing more fodder for livestock, despite making up less ground cover. The importance of this uh, vegetation is verified in the ecosystem's resilience, Research has shown that 23% of the district's woody vegetation is virtually confined to the riparian strips, those lands right, right next to the river. Despite that, these areas coincide with the driest eastern parts of Turkana, and dry season grass cover was found to fall consistently along a gradient of increasing importance in the riparian component. Despite this acute shortage of grass, Areas of exclusively riparian woody vegetation supported over 30% of all the livestock in the district during the dry season, underlining their extreme importance as a dry season forage resource. What that means is that when the grasses dried out and there was no rain, the the woody vegetation, the you know things, the equivalent of like blueberry that didn't provide fruit, mm-hmm. like those little small bushy things, provided a third of the livestock feed. Uh, which is incredible. Again, turning a resource that people can't eat into nutrients that they can. (laughs) Exactly. It's important. So we talked a lot about the animals that are grazing. We know they do cattle and caprine. Is there anything else that they did keep as livestock? Or is there anything else that we didn't mention? Yeah. So they also had camels or have camels. And again, all the animals that they they grazed were primarily again about that diversity so that they had things that could eat everything whether it's the grasses those woody vegetations the tree hay you know whatever species they had they wanted something that could eat it so that way nothing really went to waste so not only this but like i said they had the diversity where they spread out their herds Mm -hmm. so that they didn't have large clusters of all their cattle in one area um, which helped again reduce the, the stress on the, the landscape. 
So this helped maximize the use of their forge resources and reflected the diversity of the plant community. Somehow, amazingly, what's interesting in my opinion is that the animal makeup of what they were grazing is pretty similar to what they grazed before this dry spell took over the region. So I, I think that, again, ties in the fact that this is something they learned to live with as, as the ecology changed. And I'm sure there were some learning processes with that. Yeah, so it's not like they shipped in new, a new food system or new parts of a food system yeah. to, to deal with the changes in their climate and region. Yeah, and a lot of species, I'm sure, went extinct and new species moved in. And the uh, knowledge of the landscape is particularly impressive for this area. Like we talked a bit about the trees and you know the benefits that the trees have provided for this community, but they also have a, an extensive knowledge of the general plant species in the area to the point where in some research done in the 80s, 307 most common plant species in this area, 61, that is 20%, were used for food and 118, 39% were used for medicine. So they knew you know, how to use these plants for like literally everything. Um, so they, they literally found a use for as many of the plants as physically possible. Again, and that speaks to their ability to maximize the resources on their environment. Like most of Africa, colonization played a big role in destroying these systems of land management. But interestingly enough, this region of Kenya has been less impacted by colonists than other parts of Africa. Despite this, intensive work was implemented to make the land more arable, which destabilized their complex land management systems. Things like irrigation were extensively implemented and created various problems in the communities, particularly around the understanding of ownership and how that impacted their traditional diets and their food systems and how quickly things like trying to own irrigated land cause unintended consequences like people being afraid to leave their land to graze for extended periods of time. Um, which again, just kind of, we just talked about how the animals can't live on the landscape without people and vice versa. And now you've taken the animals off of the landscape in some ways, and that's destroying the plants, which you know, humans weren't even thinking about how they're managing the plants through their animal use, but it, it had an unintended consequences. Trying to bring these worlds back together has been really tough, and a lot of folks in this region are trying to re reown their traditional indigenous knowledge and bring it back, which I think is really hopeful. Yeah, I think uh, it, it's difficult Again, you need hindsight to see things clearly. It's hard to see into the future. We just don't have that ability to do. But it just goes to show that every change that you introduce into your ecosystem and the the area that you live in, it has unintended. They, 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 they have consequences. I'm yeah. not going to say they're unintended because we all have, you know, uh, we all have an effect that we are trying to make on our environment. But the ones that are unforeseen are the ones that we don't think about because we're fiddling around with a complex system. They can really come back to really make things difficult when your whole plan or whole mindset was to make things easier for yourself. We, I, I don't know what the right answer is. Um, well, you know, the thing I think that's really hopeful about this is that their ecology did a 180 and they survived and thrived. And it might not be the most comfortable lifestyle. Right. And I, that's just a total assumption. And that could be me just being a total asshole first world person. I don't, we've just learned about this. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I'm um, not an expert in Turkana. 
No, but like they went from a totally different lifestyle and a totally different ecology. And when that ecology changed, they learned to evolve with it. And I think it should give us a lot of hope that maybe we can do the same with climate change if we can pull the foot out of our ass long enough. He's trying to roll with punches. Yeah. Roll with the punches. Something like that. Well, hopefully you guys enjoyed this episode. We do apologize in getting this out. This particular episode came with extensive research on Andy's part. I just read all this stuff and tried to wrap my head around it, but go into silvopasture and stuff, and my eyes just glaze over. He loves silvopasture. <laughs> I love don't watching lie. animals chew cud. It's like my favorite thing. Yeah. So we, we did our best. Bear with that's, us. That's the spirit. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, we did have fun, though. The research was... It, it was difficult. It's hard to find. Not a lot of people are coming at this from the angle that we are. So I don't think this is like a peripheral conversation. I think we did a deep dive, but there's a lot of information. And yeah. And I think next week we'll be talking about the, uh, or the next episode rather, we're going to be talking more about the colonialism aspect of that role in these indigenous farming practices and kind of uh, doing a little bit of looking at, you know, the, the more explicit details of those practices because I think it's important we understand logically that like colonialism was a factor in various indigenous farming practices being set aside mm -hmm. but I, I think understanding that and then looking at the details of it is much different and I think it's worth doing so I think that's something we're going to talk about more in the next episode yeah so we'll unpack that shit in a couple weeks get ready so if you did enjoy the episode, please give us a review on iTunes so more folks can find the podcast. As always, this is Elliot. And this is Andy. And this is the Poor Proles Almanac. Poor Proles Almanac.